Hey y'all, this is your host Laura. Thank you for tuning in today. Y'all have been listening to me talk about the wine dots for the last few weeks, and today you get to hear the episode I recorded several weeks ago with Second Chief Louisa Libby of the Wine Dot Nation of Kansas. So now you get to hear the story of the wine dots from a wine dot. I'm really excited for you to hear this. Um what I decided to do was, this was released to my patron listeners early, um, since, you know, they do support me, and I wanted to continue to show my love for them, but y'all needed to hear Louisa, hear her voice and her words. I'm just so pleased that now that I have a platform and I have a voice, I can use that voice to uh, lift up voice, other voices of marginalized groups and hand off the microphone to them. Lastly, although we do not get graphic by any means, I do want to issue a sensitivity warning for this episode. So here we go. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. Joining me for a very special episode today is Second Chief uh, Louisa Libby of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas. Welcome. Tisha May. So uh, tell us about yourself. Who are you? What's your story? Um, my story? Um began very early on when I learned um, of my Wyandotte ancestors and heritage from my grandmother. And she would, um, she taught me about being Wyandotte and um, bits and pieces that, you know, put put together through time between my grandmother and my mother. And um, I knew that we came from Ohio to Kansas and um, she just, you know, described um, my grandmother. Her mother actually was raised by um, Margaret Clark, who was my third great grandmother that came from Ohio. So there was a lot of deep connection and family connections. Um, so as I grew, I knew that. Um, and then as an adult, um, I began getting more involved with the nation and um, participating in wherever I could. Um, of course, you don't, you start out just serving the people, uh, presentations, helping out at festivals, those type of things. I'm sorry, you said helping out where? At festivals. Um, we would go to festivals. We would um, participate um, and different um, local um, fairs, committees, those type of things, give talks about who we are. Okay. More that came more into um, when I serving as you get into adulthood. Okay. And you grew up in Kansas City, yes? Yes, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri on the South End. Okay. And uh, so I'm really curious about how did you become chief? What is that process like? Well, there's there's not a formal process, but um, to become a chief is a great honor. And it is one um, that's not taken lightly. And chief is not like a um, formal um, hierarchy. We do not have that. And in our nation, um, to become chief, you really need to have an extensive background and knowledge of who we are um, as a nation and where we have come from and how we um, participate still in society today. Um, it's a, it's a, 
way that you serve your people. It's a it's a position that you serve your people and represent and represent your people. Um, so, like I said, I was very active, um, you know, in adulthood and learning and experiencing and being mentored and all that. So um, it was, it's something that you're elected by your people. You do not like run for office, anything like that. So um, two years ago, I was asked to serve as second chief and um, that um, was a great honor and I've accepted that. Um, So I will continue to... Even if I wasn't chief, I would continue to serve my people. Well, congratulations, Jenna. That sounds like a great honor. Thank you. So is it a um is it a lifelong position or do you guys like serve in terms? We um choose to serve and our constitution is you serve for two years and then um then there's another life election and a lot of times you're reelected um so i will i will determine and let that up to the people if they would like me to serve again um our last chief served 25 years so there's no um, cap then pardon me there's no there's no uh limit then like an no, american president can only serve two terms no, no, there's no limit. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me. <coughs> so you're second chief. Obviously, that means there's a first chief. Are there other chiefs as well? No, um, not per our constitution. There's a principal chief. Uh, her name is Judy Manthe. Um, myself, second chief. And then who makes up our executive council are the two chiefs. There's a chairman, a, um, excuse me, I'm sorry. There's a treasurer. So two chiefs, a treasurer, um, like the business director, and then secretary. And the five of us um, make up the executive council. Um, But actually the the tribal council is the entire um, members of the tribe. Oh, really? We are okay. We are we are unique in that we are an all female council, and um, you don't see that often um, in this in this day and age. But it's not. It's something that just happens to be because because of those that have. Um, are out there participating um, in the communities and um, sharing and educating culture. It just it it's just right now. It just happens to be that we're all women. Um, previous um, councils have had you know we've had men. Our our um, when Jan English was serving all the years, Jim Guilford, he was second chief. So we have had a mix. It's just that this, um, at this time, it just happens to be that we're all women. Now we were, um, a matriarchal society, um, meaning that basically the women were in charge of the tribe in charge of, um, basically, all aspects of of running the villages, if you'd say. Um, We didn't live in teepees. We lived in longhouses. And longhouses were like a a long um, structure that was made of bark and willow. They had, um, that was all intact and inside you had um, different um, say cots or bunks where people stayed. You'd have um, like fires um, that you kept warm or cooked as you, and then there would be openings above for the smoke. 
but everything that that happened was in quote the longhouse, and a longhouse could be as big as a um, football field if if you wanted, and with inside a, a palisade with the the um, fencing around could be you know 50 70 longhouses within that community and so what happened was they had each individual longhouse was designated for a clan like myself I am from the big turtle clan they would have the deer clan they would a longhouse they would have a longhouse uh, for the bear clan and so on so a woman was in charge of the longhouse for her clan. She was in, um, in charge of choosing the chiefs, choosing the braves and the warriors. And um, they had all kinds of responsibilities for making sure the crops were planted and um, the children and um, being the, the senior elder for the families and things like that. So women have always had a great um, place of honor within, within our tribe and tribes as we um, go back to our homeland into Canada. So to have an all-female council, to me, goes back um, to those days. The funny thing was when the French came in up in Canada to where we were, uh, Europeans were always um, patriarchal or, or male dominant. And so when they got here and they found out that the, um, that Wyandotte's, the man wasn't um, in charge, the woman was, that was, that was quite a thing. So they, the Jesuits, and the French made sure to try to flip that um, into a European way. Of course. So eventually <laughs> the male was more of a senior person within the tribe and the family. I like um, the, yeah, it's come kind of full circle and now you have this all-female council. Uh-huh. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more in a minute about you, the history and how y'all got from Canada down to Kansas City. But I want to keep talking about um, leadership for a minute. So to be elected, you said that you had to really know your history and all. Do you study that formally or is it just oral traditions passed down through your families? It's, it's oral, it's oral traditions. Uh, we are fortunate that there are so much documented, um, and we also share histories orally through our, you know, we all, depending on, on your families um, and how you uh, learn of your heritage. Some people um, didn't know until they got older and like through their genealogy, some of us learned early on. So it, it just depends, but no matter how you um, learn, oral history or through writings or, or text or books or however, um, it doesn't make you any less, any less Wyandotte. Um, oh, so sorry. No, that, I didn't mean to imply that at all. If that's No, I, I understand. I understand. Um, there is a lot of oral traditions that are passed down. Uh, there are some things that, that, um, are only shared like our ceremonies only shared within our, um, within our tribe people. Okay. Um, you, um, and that's, that's common ceremonies and things like that. That's common. That is just kind of a, a private, but it's passed down. There's a, um, a group of us now It's kind of interesting that, that we have been holding, um, meetings kind of, Every couple of weeks, it started kind of as a small grass group of people that are sharing histories between our different um, bands in the Confederacy that we have. We are um, we have 
uh, different different bands, say, for example, and we'll get into this more later, um, our brothers and sisters in Canada and Detroit, us in Kansas and Oklahoma, and we'll get together and we share different stories, different, um, you know, facts and things that we've discovered. And that piece has been very enjoyable because you find out so much and, um, different people know, um, different, different pieces. One person is extremely, um, well educated on, you know, the Canadian side. So it's, it's fun, but whenever we get together and we do get together, um, with our different, um, brothers and sisters and, and our different, um, states or in Canada, um, we've come together and we're still together, say after 350 going on 400 years, we're still together. No matter how separated we are, we still have had, always have had communications with one another. And so in 1999, um, we uh, got together in Canada and the chiefs of all four nations, uh, the the Wendat people that were in um, Canada, the um, Wyandotte of Anderton Nation, which is up by Detroit, ourselves, the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas, and then the Wyandotte Nation, also known as the Wyandotte Nation of Oklahoma. We all got together and reaffirmed each of our nations um, are still as one in um, in the Confederacy, even though we're we're apart geographically, we still have the roots of our each of our nations, and um, we may be growing in different directions, but uh, we are strong as a whole. That's fantastic. So I hope that I didn't go off the trail here. No, 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 no. I love it. Um, I have been wondering this though. So you're, you're using terms, Confederacy, uh, band, nation, tribe, like, are these all interchangeable? I've been wondering is like, especially nation and tribe, are those interchangeable? And then like clan is a subset. How does that work? Um, a nation Confederacy is our four nations. Like I said, the Canada, Detroit area, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Each of us are individual nations. But as we came down from Canada into the States, um, say we were settled in Detroit, um, say in the 1700s, well, eventually people moved on. There was a portion of people that moved on from the Detroit or Anderton area down into upper Ohio. And our reservation in Ohio was huge. I mean, it was like over half of what you would think Ohio is today. And then from Ohio, yeah, it, before the, before the Europeans came. Right. Um, and then from Ohio, we were removed because of the Indian Removal Act by um, Andrew Jackson. And we were moved to Kansas. And then a large portion stayed in Kansas. And there was a portion that went ahead and went on down to Oklahoma. So we were all one people, though we started to, um, to kind of move down to different areas. There's a... Um, interesting tradition and it goes it goes way back that when you settled in an area you always had a sister city um, a distance apart so we think of like Detroit um, area up into upper Ohio that there was a different settlement because in that way if you had war or agricultural issues or sickness, 
you'd always have that other sister city to go to and rely on. So it wasn't just everything was just in one location. So way back, that was a tradition, which is we think of, um, say, for example, here in Kansas City, Kansas, we had Wyandotte City when we first got here. And then also there was a piece that of um, people that had land in Quindaro. So we think of that in, in some of our minds as that would have been similar, that there was a portion that was close by that could always be there for each other. Yeah, that makes total sense. That's really smart. All right, so you already uh, have given us a couple of tastes. So um, can you tell us more about just the overall history of your people and then the specifically here in Kansas? Sure. Um, our homeland is in Ontario, Canada, up by Georgian Bay, um, Collingwood, Midland. And we were part of the Iroquoian um, Confederacy. Back in pre-contact is what we would say 1650 and before, um, probably early 1600s and before we were um, met the French and Champlain, um, it was it was back then that the there was a there was a section of Iroquois that were more aggressive that they had um, some tribes that were, were joined together and just like anything. And then the, and the bands that we were with or the different um, tribes or nation, the platoon and neutrals and all that kind of got together. Um, but the more aggressive, there was, a, there was the beaver, the beaver trades back then mm -hmm. that was kind of like the big monetary um, trade that you could have. Well, um, the, the Iroquoian um, bands of the Confederacy that, that we were in were very profitable in trading beaver pelts. And when the, you think of it as when the, Europeans came over, they had, this is how I was always explained to me, which is interesting. In Europe, they would have the top hats. Well, they didn't fare well in um, rain or their other um, garments and things. But when they found out about beaver pelts, they were um, extremely well, beavers, you know, live in the river, so they're waterproof. Yeah, so they they really they really um, were a great way to do garments or or hats and things. So, beavers and the pelts ended up become a very great commodity. So that'll make sense. Okay, there was there was a reason there that the other band. Um, was trying to get our groups of the Iroquoian Confederacy um, to and run us out. And also at, at one point we were 40,000 strong up in the, you know, 1500s up in close to the 1600s. But one big thing that made us um, go down in great numbers was the different diseases and things that the Europeans brought over and the blankets, I mean, smallpox and, and um, tuberculosis, all these things, diseases that we had never been exposed to. Right. And that they just, they already had a resistance to. So between that and between being run out by um this other Iroquoian Confederacy, our numbers dropped um, down to 25% of what they were. And so when we got to Georgian Bay, 
um, at the end around Collingwood, Midland, that area, the Iroquoian were on our tails. And so we had to split. Um, Some of the people went up to Ontario, Quebec area, and to um, Wendake, um, and they were the Wendettes. They went um, to Christian Island, and many of them died because of the cold and lack of food. And then as as they moved over, they settled up by the um, Ontario area, like I said. Then the, then the rest of us who ended up becoming Detroit, um, Ohio, Kansas, Oklahoma, that group uh, fled down through the Michelle Mackinac. Islands and down into Detroit. Um, they settled on the Canadian side of the Tor- Detroit River, like in Amherstburg. They had a um, a main reserve there, and then from there, and Detroit, they were there around the time of Pontiac and and things like that. They ended up some breaking off and going down into Ohio and settling. Well, they were, they're very, um, they had a town that had, they had doctors and lawyers and churches and people. It's very functioning, you know, town site. It wasn't that we just went down there and lived in longhouses. Um, we were educated. We learned, well, here comes, the Europeans and um, Andrew Jackson. And basically they kept taking away big portions of the reservation for the white settlers that were coming across. Mm -hmm. And eventually it got down to just like 12 square miles was all that we had left. And then the um, Andrew Jackson Indian Removal Act that said all tribes needed to move west of the Mississippi to make room for all the white settlers that were coming in, they um, ended up being forced out and they were the last tribe to leave Ohio. So in July of 1843, um, they got together. They were very, they had a, a Methodist mission um, up there on the land that were, they were very close. So they had their last sermon the night before they left that basically the biggest thing that was, that was heavy on their hearts, they didn't want to leave because they didn't want to leave their dead. Um, they didn't want to leave their, their, who was going to take care of their graves and, and um, just a reverence. It's a real um, connection. And you'll see that later on when we get to Kansas City, Kansas, and the, the cemetery was the first thing um, that we made sure we had so we could bury our dead. So in 1843, we left Upper Sandusky, Ohio, and came down um, through wagons or by foot or whatever, we came down through to get to Cincinnati and where we boarded two, um, two steamships. Those were, um, one of, one of them, the captain, before we got on, had his, um, help strip everything, uh, furnishings, carpets, anything, because they thought we were savages and, and didn't want us to destroy anything. And then they put, they put everyone into one area. So it was pretty compact because we had 664 people that were coming from Ohio to be, to be forced down. Another interesting thing as it is now, Alcohol um, was a big deal and destroyed a lot of families and a lot of tribes. That was another thing that was brought over with the Europeans. And we all know about the addictions of alcohol. Yeah. So one of the um, 
big things among Native people is you didn't you didn't want your people to have access to that because it really changed people. So on the and on the way between um, Upper Sandusky down to um, boarding the steamships, um, people all along the way, um, the white men and stuff kept tempting um, people to drink. If you were if you were drunk, you couldn't serve your people. Everyone had a purpose, and unless you um, did your job, I mean, you just like back when the agriculture. If you didn't, if if everybody had a purpose, if you didn't plant and take care of the crops, then no one would eat, and so those type of things. So on the the way as we traveled from Upper Sandusky to Cincinnati, there were people all along the way that were trying to tempt and um, and get people to um, tempted so that, you know, they wouldn't, we wouldn't be successful in our, in our travels and our journey, um, which I always thought was, was kind of interesting. And if, if they did end up getting um, drunk on the way down, then they were kind of cast out or punished is what I kind of, I've kind of heard. I've not read it, but I've always found that quite interesting, um, especially because it it still happens today. Um, Another thing was that along the way, they'd go through different towns and people would line up because they wanted to see the Indians. And they thought, you know, here we are in loincloth and leather. And they were expecting the the traditional um, picture that they've always had in their mind. Mm -hmm. And we weren't like that. We had... We were introduced um, to Europeans way up in the in Canada. We had cloth. I mean, you would barter for different goods. We had regular um, cotton cloth and different things. So we we looked dressed like everyone else. Um, so people and we were very. Um, we came through. Um, and we were just, we had honor, we had dignity. We weren't, um, we just, we came through quietly. So after we boarded, um, the ships, we went from, um, the Ohio river down to, um, the Mississippi and down to kind of, it was more like the boot hill of Missouri where the Mississippi turns and, uh, you can go up the Missouri. And so we came up the Missouri river and all the way across to, um, we were supposed to get off at Westport landing. Well, the, um, the captains of the ship, he, he came and dumped us at the West bottoms and we were supposed to, and to have land that was part of, of the treaty. When we left, you would have land when you got here. Well, it is said that the land that we were promised would have been like the West Bottoms, Westport, down through the plaza. Well, that didn't exist. And that was, you know, they said the Shawnee was, would um, sell us that land. That was like a lot of treaties didn't come through and it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up on the West, the West bottom. So you'd think at the confluence of where the Missouri river meets the call. Right. um, It's also Mm -hmm. low ground. So it would have um, flooded. There was a horrible flood that came through and um, I guess the river rose something fierce like 16 feet so there were it rose so high that there were buffalo in the trees um so from from being in those kind of conditions and cold and wet and all that we lost between 60 and 100 people just 
because we had nowhere to go and we were there. There were a few people that were able to actually find housing kind of up into the Westport area, but the majority of people were just on the banks. So what we needed to do to secure land, um, the Delaware were on the Kansas side of the river and they actually agreed to, to um, sell us land. And we had helped them up in Ohio um, when they needed help with, um, with getting um, some, some land up there. So they sold us, it was around, I always thought 148, 148,000 acres. And then they also gave us three additional parcels as a, as a thank you for helping them out in Ohio. So that was secured, say, in, in like December of 43 up until early, early spring. Okay. All the transactions took place. So once we were able to do that, we went across and at the highest point um, of the land was always to be the cemetery because in that way floods or anything wouldn't wouldn't touch it. So that was the first thing that that we did when we went across was to build um, the cemetery so we could bury our dead. And then the first buildings that we built were the church and the schools, because that was very important um, to us to be able to worship and to be able to educate. Um, So, we, we went across and we still had, um, we, we made our communities. Um, we set up a town. We did everything like, like what you would um, think was, was a traditional way to live back then. Yeah. Um, so from there we had, it was 1843 up until 1855. Um, when the government came back and said, okay, we're going to end this treaty and you guys are all become citizens. So, and then we're going to give you each an allotment of land. So again, as it's been um, throughout history, it's always think kind of a bait and switch. Here's the treaty. Oh, no, we're taking it back and changing it. And through time, tribes have dwindled um, in numbers, um, land, you've lost your land. And so that, to me, was no surprise. It's just. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised either. Yeah. So historically, um, 1855, that kind of happened. They had allotments of land that were broken up in the in the town, and the town name was Wyandotte City. Um, later on, it was changed to Kansas City, Kansas. Um, but all the breakup of the land also was a way to eventually start getting the land from people that couldn't couldn't afford it. Um, and women couldn't own land. Right. So a man, um, or a husband, um, would come in and marry so that they could get the land. Um, there were all kinds of, of things that, that happened like that, that you would, that you could think of all the allotments and everything would be what we now think of as Kansas City, Kansas. I mean, yeah, Wyandotte County, excuse me. All of so Wyandotte County? Yeah. Okay. That's what was the reservation. Um, there is at the Kansas City, Kansas Community College, there's a monument there that shows kind of like the, the line reservation lines between the Delaware and 
the Wyandotte and kind of honor other tribes that were here in this area, which would have been the Shawnee and the um, Muncie. Those were the four that would have been traditionally um, had land at one time in Wyandotte County. Uh, I didn't know there was a monument. I'll have to go find that. Yeah. I, um, I guess if you go to the jewel building, it's kind of back behind there. Um, I've never been there. There is, I think coming up in, I want to say March, there's going to be a ceremony kind of rededicating that and they're supposed to have dignitaries and then, um, people representing some of the other tribes. Um, the Muncie had an extremely small piece and I think of it more, I may be kind of off, but more down kind of by the Argentine district or, or, or further on that end of Wyandotte County, that one extreme. No, I know that Um, somebody was settled in Argentine before became the African American neighborhood, but I didn't know who it was. Uh huh. Um, the Muncie ended up going, I want to say back, they went back East. Um, so they didn't, stick around. The Shawnee, the Eastern Shawnee have settled their reservation down in Oklahoma, kind of in the northeast corner down where the Wyandots of Oklahoma are. Yeah. And the Delaware, um, they're, I've met their chief. They have a female chief. And um, so I don't know if they have where they have their final reservation or not. Um, but they do have a group here and still in Kansas. The Delaware do? Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. They, have either. A, they have a, a um, like I said, they have a female chief. I don't know much more about that. We were able to um, meet her when we were giving a presentation over at the college. So that was kind of, that was an honor to be able to, to connect with them. So for history wise, um, in the later um, 55 was the end of the treaty. And they said, Oh, you're citizens. Well, in the, later 1850s, there were some allotments um, over in what we consider the Quindaro Township now. Um, And what happened was there was a um, Nancy Quindaro Brown married Abelard Guthrie, and Nancy um, Quindaro was a Wyandotte. She was actually a cousin of mine, if you go back in the, the lineage. Um, so Abelard wanted to create this town and name it after her and bring in um, settlers from the east and um, different um, immigrants and, and try to create this town. And he had Nancy go and convince the people that had the allotments there to sell the land to Avalard. And Avalard, he was, as my grandmother would say, he was a skunk. Yeah. He doesn't sound like a great guy. No, he wasn't. He wasn't an honorable man. He pursued Nancy um, since the time when they were up in Ohio and he was kind of a, uh, he worked for the government, like a land agent or something up there. Well, Nancy's father knew and didn't, didn't trust him. He didn't think he was, um, a good man proper for his daughter and he got so upset one time he took a shot at him. <laughs> and so the, the council kind of, um, you know, they try to calm him down. He got so mad, he ended up going back up to Canada on the reserve because she wouldn't listen. So by the time they got here 
um, into what would be Wyandotte City at the time. Um, he ended up marrying her. Well, that gave him connections with the land and so forth. But he did not treat her um, with respect at all. He had um, the story I've heard. One was that, that he would take her down um, to the mill or something and have her weighed on the scale, which was totally demoralizing. And yeah, no he just he sounds like a he just sounds like a horrible person. Um, so he he wanted to start this town. Um, which he did, and with um, a couple other um, white men. And so the town really did kind of take off. Um, they had the one, they had two hotels, one of which um, the Wyandotte Hotel was um, Ebenezer and Rebecca Zane. They were Wyandots. And they had a quarry, they had a newspaper, um, they had all kinds of um, business and commerce going on. So it was, it was successful, um, but just for a very short time until, you know, the Civil War was just around the corner. And it was also the coolest thing about Quindaro Takeaway is that um, we were on the Underground Railroad. So the Wyandots and the other people that lived there helped um, the runaways to get um, hidden security and get um, get on their way. So we were kind of one of the biggest connection points in the area. And people would go um, to the Parkville um editor of the newspaper and he was an abolitionist um and the Wyandots were always abolitionist I mean there were a few that weren't but um so what would happen is the people that were say in Platte County at the tobacco farms and um other places they knew if they could get to Parkville to the editor he would try to get them across so they came across the Missouri River which it was no way as wide as it is now. Um, one person describes it as um, it was just kind of a braided stream. Oh, wow. It's so funny. Mm-hmm, if they could get across by hiding on the ferry um, in the winter, they could cross on the ice. But if they could somehow get to Quindaro, they knew that they they could get help and um, continuing on the Underground Railroad up north. Well, there's documented uh, some of them. They We would hide them in the cisterns or um, in all kinds of different ways uh, for when um, the slave masters would would send people, you know, because they all had a bounty on their head. Right. And wanted them back. So it's an extremely big part of our history and a lot of pride. And if um, we go back into the Wyandotte Reserve history up, up there, we were also very big um connection point up there on the Underground Railroad because they knew if they could get onto Indian territory, onto the reserve, um, the other people couldn't touch them because they were actually in Indian territory. So if, if we could get, as we can move people on our connection further up north, um, the Ohio was further up north. Um, a lot of people stopped at the Lakota up in like um, Lakota also means Sioux, um, but they if they could get up into the Dakotas, um, some people stopped and settled there. But the end point, which is interesting, of the Underground Railroad is Collingwood. And if you remember, 
earlier, I said Collingwood was kind of our homeland. So it's kind of neat to think that we were um, helped people. And then the, the final destination would have been would have been our homeland or to get people into Canada um, to be free. That's an amazing legacy to have. It's amazing. So one of the biggest um, connections um, still to this day are um, our brothers and sisters in Quindaro. Um, There were, I want to say this, 17 families, 14 families, something like that, that came across and to stay. But see, when the Civil War broke out, everybody had to kind of scatter. Mm -hmm. And the Union Army came in town and kind of took over and and kind of trashed everything. So people scattered. Um, There were families, though, of the freedom seekers that went up and settled up on the hill, um, on the cliff, so to speak. So if you go to 27th and Sewell, at the end of, of the road, there is an overlook. And it overlooks where the town site um, would have been for Quindaro. There's still a lot of the, the foundations that are there, um, just barely like the first first row or just a few rows of what the foundations would have been at the time for the town. Um, The town was also the first free port on the Missouri River, which just meant because Kansas at the time was um, an abolitionist country, then it's like if that would have been the port that did not last very long. Another thing I think that Abelard was counting on and a reason why looking back that the um, allotments were made is because then that way Europeans and other people could get a hold of that land easier and because they wanted the railroad was going to be coming through. And that was a connection up through the railroad, up through Fort Leavenworth. Well, the railroad came through, but what Abelard wasn't counting on, he thought there would be a stop there, which would make it a lot more valuable area. Well, they didn't. The railroad just went on through. So that was another piece of the puzzle, I think, that was part of the demise. Um, one cool fact, though, um, the Wyandots, um, we give we help give tours of that area along with um, some people in Quindaro, like Anthony Hope, who is the um, museum curator of the old Concerned Citizens. Um, is that open now? I thought it was closed. It was. It's closed okay. um, for the time being, but we can still give tours. And then Luther Smith, who has is in the Vernon building, and he has an underground railroad museum that's extremely fascinating and interesting. But we'll go with Anthony up to the Overlook and we'll tell our story. And then Anthony tells the story of Quindaro. And one place, two places, I guess you'd say, that we can still um, go and see. One is the old brewery that was there. Um, there's still some of the structure, little pieces that were reinforced. Um, and the brewery is because people couldn't drink the water back then. Right. So a lot of times, here we go again with the alcohol. And even children would drink because sometimes the water the water wasn't good. Well, if you go down to the brewery on on a tour, you can get back there um, with Anthony. Also, the path that you go down is the same path that the people would um, get on um, to run for freedom. It was also part of where the um, bounty hunters would come. 
So that's that's pretty interesting. But you get down to the brewery, and behind there is kind of like this. Um, it's kind of a. I always thought of it as ice cave, but it was just kind of a berm built in to the to the um, to the dirt, and it was hollowed out, and that's where. They would keep ice. They would keep their their goods and things like that. Well, if you go in and you go to the back and you look up, there's they call it the hatch, and it's still there. It's like a I say maybe twenty inches square, and looks all the way up. You can see the light. Well, if the um, freedom seekers would go there and jump down the hatch, they could hide behind all the goods and everything. And it was one place um, that's still interesting that you could see to this day. And it's, um, it's, it's just such a, it's an emotional experience to, to go in there and to see um, to this day, exactly what they would have seen when they came down. Yeah. I Um, can imagine. And I could hear it in your voice actually, as you're describing. uh It's just, I just, I don't know. I feel such a connection to that area anyway. Um, and then well, hang just on, hang on. I know you have a lot more you want to say. I have a couple of questions because you've said some very interesting things. So the town of Quindaro is no longer there. Um, but was no. it destroyed when the armies came through or just kind of, um, you know, deteriorated because there was no railroad stop? Um, when the civil war came through, it kind of disbanded or dispersed, people dispersed. And, um, also when the union army came through, um, they used, like they put their horses in the hotel and just kind of, to me, just kind of trashed the area. Okay. And then after the war, just nobody came back. Um, there were some people there that stayed. Um, like I said, there were, um, I don't know if it was 14, 17 families that that stayed and still at, to this day, there's, oh, I think maybe five families that are still there, um, the generations. Um, Anthony Hope, who I mentioned, he's fifth generation um, freed slave and they're still there. Their family is. And one interesting um, fact, when they would come across the river, they were afraid to because um, their masters and everyone said, don't go over there because there's Indians and there's savages and they'll kill you and all these horrible things. Well, Anthony's um, brother, Jesse, um, he would tell us that um, the Wyandotte greeted them and said that we they were people of the earth, just like us. And then they would take them in, and then we would we would hide them from those that were coming, and then help them also along with with other people in the town to get them on their way on the underground railroad, which is a big sense of of pride um, for us as, as Wyandots, but just as people that we were part of some history that was so, so important, um, at the time. Well, so that, um, kind of is related to my other question is, do you know, and if you don't, it's totally fine. I don't expect you to know every question I answer, um, question I ask, but do you know if, um, there were any raids conducted in the Quindera area because they were housing runaway slaves? Um, I, I don't know of like a formal raid into the town. Um, what I've heard is that the, um, just the, the slave masters would, would send out people that were looking that, that the slave masters would, would send people out to, to find them. And from the stories and things that we've told, all the people that come through um, seeking freedom, only one person was ever caught. Oh, okay. Taken back. So 
some could go on um, the railroad up into Lawrence, but a lot of people we could get out and they could go up north through um, Leavenworth and continue on north. Okay. So right. there's a couple of things that had stood out to me that I was curious about. Mm-hmm. And that will be the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. The second half of this conversation, because it was actually a two-hour conversation that I had to break up, and this was just about the only viable spot to do so, uh, is immediately available, so I hope you'll check that out. I hope you'll consider becoming a financial supporter of the show if you are able to do so. There are a couple ways to do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash homegrownkc, or redcircle.com, slash homegrownkc. You can also give one-time donations at Red Circle or at Kofi, that's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want. If you become a uh, patron supporter, then you get three things. One, you get an item from the the, uh, merchandise store valued at $5 or less. You get a shout-out on each show, so thank you Bjorn and Joan for your continued support. And you get access to exclusive bonus content, such as this episode. However, as I said at the beginning of this episode, everyone is getting to listen to this. My patron supporters just got to listen to it earlier than everyone else. If you just donate, then you don't get the bonus content and you don't get an item from the merchandise store, but you will get a shout-out. And every donation on... Kofi, 1% will automatically go to fight climate change. If you can't support me monetarily, which is totally cool, I get it, you can still support me by uh, following the show, liking, subscribing to Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, And especially make sure you rate and review me on either Apple Podcasts or Facebook or wherever it is that you listen to the show. You can visit my website for additional information. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I am still a little bit behind, but there is a lot of new content on there if you haven't been on in a while. And you can subscribe to my newsletter on my website. You'll get an email from me about once a month saying, here's what's going on with the show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social networks. For merchandise, go to Zazzle, that's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore Casey underscore store. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear missus for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. To local libraries, which enable me to gather my research. And a special thank you to you all of you listeners and to Chief Libby. Cheers, y'all. Talk.